you see the sweat started already. I'm not sure if that's the humidity or the topic. Uh, I think this is one of the most challenging things our Lord has ever said to us, to love each other. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word and we ask that you will work in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, that which is pleasing to you. Amen. Well, a few years ago, an American pastor, a really good guy, pastor of a great church, he wrote a book called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Uh, the nine things that he saw were lacking in, well, at least American churches, the Western churches, but that you need these things to be a healthy church. And I thought maybe you could take a moment and look at the person around you. And, and what, what would you put on that list? What are the nine distinguishing marks of what you would see as a healthy church? Hmm. Go to it. Grasses, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. Oh, this was a healthy church. What does a healthy church look like? What, what marks? Well, I'll, I'll show you the list he came up with. Here you go. I don't know if you can read that from there. And I'll read it. I'll go. <sighs> Do better in typing it bigger. Uh, okay, I'll read it. So he came up with this list. Preaching, biblical theology... The gospel, conversion, evangelism, membership, discipline, discipleship, and leadership. And, and you'd have to go and read the website or the book to know what he means by each of those. And I think he's got some really good points about all of them. It's a great analysis of uh, modern church life and what's lacking and why so many churches have given up on one or more of those things. But I read that list and I can't but help think, there's something missing. Uh, prayer's missing. I mean, that's interesting. But, but you know what I think it's even stranger he missed? Love. Love, a bit like Carol said. Um, because you remember what Jesus said in that reading, uh, is the mark of a disciple, a mark of life. I give you a new command, love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It, it's the one distinguishing mark of a Christian or of a Christian church, isn't it? How does Jesus say you'll know that someone else is a Christian? By their love for other believers. How would you know if a church is a Christian church? By their love for each other. How would you be able to, anyone else be able to identify you as a Christian? By the way you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe you're gulping at this moment going, oh no. <laughs> uh, but when I think about it, it should be no surprise that love is a dis should be a distinguishing feature of our lives. On multiple occasions, Jesus summarised the whole of God's expectations and commands to us. What is the first and the greatest commandment? We used to read this before COVID at every Sunday service. I said, <laughs> yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength that's the most important the first thing you should do every day and really that's another way of talking about worship that we were say, saying a few weeks ago you know living a life of devotion to god devoted to him with every part of your being loving him but jesus would always go on and say there's a second commandment what's the second commandment love your neighbor as yourself 
And, and all of us know the temptation to try and minimise that, doubt it, get out of it, just like the man who had that conversation with Jesus and then sought to justify himself and said, well, who then is my neighbour? Right? Maybe if I can define it in such a way that it's only people I happen to like and get on with who will scratch my back when I scratch theirs, then I'm good to go. I'm more than happy to love people who love me, who make me feel good, whose company I enjoy. But Jesus wouldn't let that man get away with it and he's not going to let us get away with it either. And he tells that parable of the good Samaritan who overcomes all his inbuilt hatreds of his upbringing, overcomes all his religious sensibilities, all his national pride to care for a man in desperate need and who by all rights was his enemy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Right? That is, there is no one that we're not to love. It, it, it even extends explicitly on another occasion to loving your enemy. And who does that? Uh, well, God did. God did it with us. And so the command to love your neighbour as yourself if, if, is far-reaching, isn't it? It's challenging. But if we're called upon even to love our enemies, how much more of a priority does God put on it that we love one another within the body of Christ? I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about the same thing when he talks about bearing each other's burdens and he gets to verse 10 of chapter 6. He says, therefore... As we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. We've got to love our neighbour. But especially for those who belong to the household of faith. There's a priority. There's a centrality. There's a, a, you know, a focus group that, with our love. You know, the household of faith, by which he means the church. Now, why is that? Why does God put such a high priority on loving other believers and loving Christians, loving your church? Well, it's because in calling us back to himself as uh, our Heavenly Father in the Gospel, giving us new life and peace and joy with him now, we're, we're not just united to him, but we're also united with everyone else who's, who's heard the call, who's come into the family. We are God's children. It makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And the key to being any family, well, key to life really, is love, isn't it? Sure, some of us have had bitter experiences in, in our own family and, and there was no love and we know how terrible and damaging that was and, and I guess all of us have seen the effects on other people even if we've not experienced ourselves when someone's been in a family like that. So we know that love in family life really matters, that it's essential and important. But if we want to be able to love and we want to know how to love, then we've got to grasp what God means by it. Because God's view of love is poles apart from the world around us and how it thinks about love. Now, our culture, our society, our world is, is all for love. It's obsessed by it. But what does it mean by it? Well, I think they mean one of two things when, when the world talks about love. Uh, the first sort of love is, is Hollywood love, isn't it? It's the constant theme of the movies on TV, the... The, the, almost every song you listen to on the radio, just think about the songs you might uh, hear on radio or on Spotify if you've moved into the new age. Um, well, uh, I want to know what love is. 
Love is all around. Love is in the air. Uh, love lifts us up where we belong. Can you feel the love tonight? Love changes everything. I can't help falling in love with you. I'm guilty of love in the first degree. I, E, I, E, I will always love you. <laughs> what, what are they all talking about? What is this love that they're obsessed by? Well, it's sweaty palms. It's hearts beating faster whenever the other person walks in the room. That's, that's Hollywood love. It's a, a feeling, a sensation, an emotional experience, something that happens to us, that, something we have almost no control over. And it comes quickly, but then it can disappear almost as fast. I don't love you anymore. <laughs> That's one way the world views love, or a second way they think of it. Uh, and our, this is increasingly the case. Our culture thinks of love in terms of affirmation, affirming everyone, affirming everything. If you're a loving person, it means you'll affirm and okay someone else in their beliefs, in their lifestyle, in their choices, no matter how inane, no matter how dangerous, no matter how damaging they might happen to be to themselves or other people, uh, and no matter how damaging in this life or even in eternity. But neither of those things is love as God sees it. And we've got to put those out of our minds so that we can do business with God and live what is really a radically new way of life that's totally countercultural. It's very different to anything you'll see in the world. So, what's God's view of love? If it's not sweaty palms or it's not total affirmation of everything and okaying it all, well, I want to take us to this famous passage that's read at just about every wedding. Maybe it was read at your wedding uh, from 1 Corinthians 13 which actually isn't about marriage at all. It's got nothing to do with marriage. I mean, it may have some tangential you know, links to it, but you know what it's about? It's about church. That's what that passage on love is about. He's been talking up to this point, and he's in the middle of a section about how God has formed us into a new family, how we're to view ourselves as a church as one body. He says the church is a body in chapter 12, and we're all different body parts. You know, that you might be a leg or an eye. I might be a belly button. Uh, <laughs> John's in trouble if he's an earlobe because he's just had it cut off. Uh, it's skin cancer, or maybe it's being analysed. Uh, and because we're all different to each other, you might be tempted to think, well, maybe I don't belong because I'm, I'm not like them. Or maybe you're tempted to think, you know what? They don't belong because they're not like me <laughs> or not like the rest of us. But he says we're not to despise each other like that. And then he moves on in chapter 13 to say the secret to being this family, the key to functioning as this body is love. And I just want to draw out the three main points that Paul makes there about this love we're to have for one another as the church, the love that, that Jesus was talking about when he says love one another first thing he says is that love this way is not an optional extra it's essential in fact without it anything else that you might have going for you as a believer or as a group of believers is useless you could be the greatest preacher you could be the best uh, church singer ever you could do short-term missions every year of your life to all the poorest parts of the world you could have plumbed the depths 
of Augustine's City of God or Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, Kathy's halfway through, uh, <laughs> uh, you could be the organiser of the greatest roster system any church has ever known and all the jobs always got done and there was a way of everyone swapping and having the dates that they wanted. But he says, well, that would be impressive, wouldn't it? But he says, if it's not fueled any of those things or driven or underpinned by love, then it's a complete waste of time. Look, look how he says it there. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my positions to, and give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. That's a reality check for us all, isn't it? We might think we're all that, but if there's no love, nothing, nothing, nothing. So it's not optional. Why, why would we ever think it was when Jesus says, that's the distinguishing mark of my people. <laughs> That's his first point. You can't do without it. But then he moves on to tell us what this love is that's so essential, to describe it. And, and, and it turns out it's got absolutely nothing to do with sweaty palms or blindly affirming everyone in everything. This is how he says it in the passage. Verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. It's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And you look at that list, it's not simple, is it? Although it's easy enough to understand every part of it and, and you know, the, all those things he's talking about and, and it really is love, someone doing that and being like that would be loving. But it's not a simple definition. I think if it was a simple definition, then I think we'd be tempted to minimise it, wouldn't we? Um, if, if love was as simple as a little to-do list and I could just check off all the parts and we're done for the day, that'd be simple, wouldn't it? it if my commitment to loving others in church consisted of things like, you know, give $5 uh, to 10 different people today, shake hands with the minister and high-five 10 others on the way out, um, you know, and, and get on the cl church cleaning roster twice a year, that's love, I'm done, right? <laughs> we could all do that, we'd all be happy to do that. But God's way of love is more searching than that. It's all-encompassing, it's all of life. Notice that it's practical. Notice that it, it stems from having a right heart attitude towards other people. Notice that God's way of love is a way of being, not just of doing. It's just how you are. And I think if I could summarise the whole list, I guess the defining feature that, that's in all of those things that is that this love he's talking about is about the good of the other person. It's... That's God's way of love. It's about looking out for them before yourself. It's an attitude which says, I'm going to work and live for, my, for your best and not my own. It's something that takes real humility to do. It's self-sacrificial. It's 
Well, it's totally the opposite of anything that the world can fathom. And you can see why people who love like that would be marked out as something altogether different to this world. It's alien. It's strange. Who does that? But there's a third thing that we're told about this true sort of love. And that is it's eternal. Not just that it keeps going in hard circumstances, which it does, it's persistent, it perseveres. But look at verse 8. He says, love never ends. What does he mean by that? But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. And these three remain, right? Even after everything else is gone, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Here is something that's eternal, not temporary. It doesn't end with this world. Love is not going to go up in flames when Christ returns and he rips the universe apart, atom from, by atom. It's eternal in part because relationships, at least those within the church, are the only thing that's going to go on past this life. What from this world is going to be there in the new one? It's not the trees. It's not the pews. It's not the red carpet. It's people. And only the people who have been saved by his love. United together in glory, round the throne of God in joy and wonder. But it's also eternal because this is the love of God. He's the source of it. Isn't that the very kind of love that he shows us when he sends his son to die in our place, when we were his enemies and we didn't want him in our lives? He reached out patiently, kindly, not arrogantly, and he paid for us. He holds no record of wrongs against those he's forgiven. He rejoices in the truth and not in unrighteousness. It wasn't that God was giddy with excitement when we walked in the room and when he first saw us, he's like, Ooh, oh, Carol's just come out of my mother's womb. Oh, so exciting. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it wasn't that he affirmed everything about us and approved of every selfish thing and every decision we ever made. Certainly not. He calls us to change when we're in the wrong. Actually, the Bible has a stronger word, doesn't it? Repent. Love doesn't mean okaying everything by shutting up and never pointing out something that's evil, damaging or destructive. That silence in those moments can actually be profoundly unloving. But what's the opposite of love? I think most people would say, well, the opposite of love is hate, right? Hate's not the opposite of love. The opposite of love is apathy. It's not caring. When you don't give a toss about this person's relationship with God that's in jeopardy or the unbeliever who's on the road to destruction or even that someone's mindset as a Christian or their decisions or actions are self-destructive and socially damaging and causing real harm 
to themselves or to others and their standing with God, to not care, to not do or say anything is monstrously evil and it's profoundly unloving. True love means we will speak up when it's needed. But, and, and this is a big but, it doesn't mean when you do say something, it, it's got to be with their best interest in heart, in a way that they will know that you really do care for them, in an environment of trust that you created, with a clear demonstration of your commitment to them and helping them change. So when Jesus says by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, it, it's not simply a nice little throwaway line, something memorable, something to put on a poster on your wall and feel good about yourself. It, it, it's not there to make us feel warm and gooey inside. Not a pleasant thought for the day. It's got teeth on it. And just think about when it was that Jesus said it. John chapter 13, sure, we just had that announced. But when was that? Well, it was a Passover meal. As he turns out, his last meal. And he's telling them, I'm going tomorrow to die for you. My blood is going to be shed for you. Remember that. That's love. He doesn't speak empty words. The hymn writers get it. A love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So what does a church look like that's marked by this kind of love? Is it possible to see what that looks like in action? Well, I want to take us to three examples from the New Testament. Uh, they're not all good examples, I'll warn you now. Uh, the first one's certainly bad, that's the Corinthian church. The, the very church that he was writing this letter to in this great passage that we all love and we have at our weddings, or other people do anyway. You know, I've noticed that at our night church, when they get married, they, they have any passage but that. They'll go for the most obscure, weird thing. I think it's a challenge to the preacher, I think. But, uh, um, but uh, he wasn't having a poetic moment when he wrote it. It was a stinging rebuke. Imagine if we read that passage at weddings with the same exasperation that Paul had when he wrote it. I think it might sink in better. You know, we're reading from 1 Corinthians. You thickheads! Don't you know love is patient? It's kind? It's not self-seeking? <laughs> and you go back and read through the letter and you look at this church and you think, man, they're at each other's throats. They were bragging about which spiritual guru they were following, which one was better. They were saying that some members of the church were worthless and should get out. They were sleeping around with each other. They were sleeping with their uh, relatives uh, they were sleeping with prostitutes. Uh, some were getting absolutely hammered at the church functions. Others were gorging themselves at the potluck dinners while others starved. They were suing the pants off each other for every little thing, left, right and centre. I mean, this was messed up. And he's saying love doesn't do that. That's his point. This is what church should be like. A body which when one per part hurts, all the rest hurt with it. When one member grieves, all the rest of us grieve too. And when one rejoices, the others rejoice. And everyone pulls together and they use their talents and resources and time to serve each other. And they love like this as we, we get on with God's purposes. That's one example. The second example, well, it looks more impressive, 
but there's something wrong. That's Ephesus. It wasn't a church in a great big mess. Eh? In fact, they had everything sorted out. It was the opposite. Really. It was ordered. It was neat. It was a hive of activities. They were doing great things for God. Uh, but hear Jesus' word to them from Revelation chapter 2. I think I've got that up here, uh, possibly. That may be too small to read as well, is it? Uh, he says, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labour and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be lies. This church, they knew their theology. They had it all worked out. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you've not grown weary. They, you know, they stand firm in a world that's opposed to, to Christ. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Our professionals, they were slick. They had all the right answers to everything. They worked hard, but they'd lost the most important thing, love. And you go, well, what kind of, well, I take it it's all sorts of, they, they'd lost their love for God. Right, it was mechanical. It was they, they lost their love for each other, and they'd lost their love for the lost world out there. They were just an empty shell, weren't they? Impressive, like a mother of pearl is an impressive empty shell, but really just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, giving God a headache. And He's about to be done with them. He says. The third example is the good one. And that's the church in Jerusalem. Uh, it's in Acts chapter 2, if you want to look it up in your own Bible there. Um, 3,000 or so people have just become Christians uh, and they formed the first church. But what was it like? Well, Acts 2 verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You hear that? You think, well, how, how would you describe that church? I'd say, well, you could use all sorts of descriptions. You could say they're on fire for Jesus. <laughs> but, but I'd say they loved. They loved Jesus. They loved each other just like Christ had loved them. They, they loved God. They couldn't get enough of his word. They loved to pray with each other. They were devoted to both those things. And they loved each other sacrificially they were devoted to the fellowship we're told and the breaking of bread and and you, well I, we've got to get those terms right fellowship means partnership it, they were invested in each other they even sold property to care for each other you ever thought about doing that you got a spare holiday house you think actually someone at church needs needs help i could sell that and i'd have a whole lot of money to 
particularly in today's property market. Right? That's what they were doing. I'm not saying we have to do that or should do that, but have you ever, had that ever crossed your mind to do that? They, they didn't even have to think about it. And the breaking of bread, it's, it's not talking about communion. Uh, it, it's they ate meals together. They were in each other's homes and lives. Now, now, none of that means that every single one of them was deeply committed and knew every single other one. Imagine a church of 3,000 people and uh, you had have everyone over to your house and you've got to provide for every single one of those people's needs. Like, this is what it's talking about, right? It, it wasn't that they were, every single person was personally involved in every single ministry of the church. Right, all 3,000 turn up to run Sunday school, and then they all turned up to do youth group, and then they all turned up to do whatever. No, uh, but they were a great example of what church should be like. They were there for each other. Do you know the, uh, the New Testament uses the phrase one another to talk about church over 50 times, to talk about what churches should be like? We're commanded to pray for each other, encourage each other, admonish each other, greet each other, serve each other, teach each other, accept each other, honour each other, bear each other's burdens, forgive each other, submit to each other, be devoted to each other and to not give up meeting with each other. And all those things really are just expressions of this love which is the mark of the church, the love that Christ had for us. That's what the church in Jerusalem, at least at this moment in time, was like. And so as we make a fresh start this year in all these things that we've talked about, a fresh start in worship, a fresh start in prayer, a fresh start in evangelism, a fresh start in learning, right? we want to be those things, more and more devoted to God, thankful to Him and praying for everything, um, seeking desperately to win the lost, uh, longing to know God and to think his thoughts after him. But let's not forget to also make a fresh start in loving. That may mean that there are some hard conversations that might need to be had between members of this church. Old hurts that need to be mended. It might mean that there are apologies that have to be made. It might mean that there are old patterns of relating that need to change. It will certainly mean making some commitments to each other. Here's a few, I think, that are just clear implications, some commitments. I think we need to own ourselves and personally make to everyone else here. A commitment to come. We are the poorer when you are not here. A commitment to be involved. Right? We're not attendees, we're participants in a body. A commitment to sacrifice time, energy and resources for each other. A commitment to relationships and doing the things that are helpful and not just kind of running away and oh, someone's coming to talk to me, see you later. <laughs> a commitment to caring for each other's needs. Physical, emotional, spiritual and a commitment to our common purpose and seeking to achieve it in love together and I pray and I, I, will you pray with me that God might make this a reality 
Let's do that now as we pray together the St. Barnabas prayer. Thanks, Adam. He's going to bring it up on the screen. Almighty God, we ask you to glorify yourself in us. Please use us to bring people to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, lay the foundations of living for you, and grow them to maturity in Christ. Give us grace, patience, and confidence as we seek to connect with our community and grow your kingdom in Ingleburn, Glenquarry, and our surrounds by proclaiming Jesus. Make us prayerfully dependent, biblically sharp, 